And so I've been mentioning there, studying through Acts the same as we are, and uh, means as, as you hear and, and learn this morning, you can teach them further in, in what you're, you're learning and they're learning, help them understand a little bit better as you have opportunity. <clears throat> this Wednesday evening, we'll be having a Bible study again, as we, we do each week. We're going to begin a, well, just a short little uh, kind of series there on the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned on, on Wednesday, we talk a lot about the Father and trying to understand who the Father is and, and his role. We talk a lot about the Son and particularly the redemption that he brings, um, but we don't talk probably enough about the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives, his place within the Godhead, with the exception of probably one or two you know, parts of his ministry, much of it's neglected. So we want to take just a, a few weeks just to think through the great work of the Spirit, who he is and, and what he does. So we'll be doing that this Wednesday evening, starting just a couple of thoughts through there. Uh, this morning, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and like we did last week, we did a whole chunk because it's, it's hard to separate, so we're going to do the whole um, uh, episode here with uh, Peter and John in chapter 4. This is really the continuation of what took place in chapter 3, uh, and so we'll, we'll go through that, and because it's a, a longer section, we'll read, read through it together. So Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 31 together it says now as they spoke to the people and that's peter and john from uh, chapter 3 the priests the captain of the temple and the sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in jesus the resurrection from the dead and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening however Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident, 
to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the heathen nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's ask God's blessing as we come to his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, having read your word, we ask now that you would teach us and encourage us through it. Give us strength and boldness, the power of the Spirit to be the testimony and the witness that we need to be in this world. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> now, Acts is, you know, even as we've seen, Acts is, is one of those books that gets most people excited really quickly. We begin Acts and, and it's, it's just excitement and we read it and we're going, yes, 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 because we come to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, we have the challenge of the commission, and Jesus is uh, uh, empowering us and, and telling us what he set before us and, and his promise. And we say, yes, that's great, and we get excited about what's ahead and what Jesus has for the people of God. And then we come to Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 2 is the, the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and, and we see his power come upon his people, and the Spirit come to stay with us forever and and people get saved and the church begins to explode and grow and and we're excited and we're going yes yes this is great and then acts chapter three comes along and peter and john are on their way to the the temple and and we saw last week they heal this this man this 40 year old man and raise him up and and the whole place just explodes in praise and glory of God. And we're thinking, yes, this is fantastic. So through the first three chapters, we're just excited and thinking, yes, yes. And then we come to chapter four. No, this is not what I want. Because we've gone through all this excitement. Yes, this is what we, we want Jesus to do. And in Acts chapter five and Acts chapter six, it doesn't get any better. 
In Acts chapter 5, the church has issues and there's, there's trouble there. And in, in Acts chapter 6, they have issues and we'll see these as we go ahead, but trouble comes. Your people often say, oh, we, we need to be more like the early church. And when people say that, usually what they mean, when they say we need to be more like the early church, usually what they mean is we want the power of the early church and we want the, the people saved like the early church and we want big churches and we want miracles. And that's usually what people mean when they say we need to be more like the early church. You have probably never, ever heard anyone say we want to go to prison. That's chapter four. And if we want to be like the early church and have the power and the presence of God like the early church, it is not just excitement and miracles and wonder and salvations. It also includes prison and trials and persecution. We're pretty selective about how we want to be like the early church most of the time. We want Acts chapters 1 to 3. We don't want Acts chapters 4 and 5, usually. For most of us, persecution is a foreign concept. We don't understand it. We don't hear it much. We don't experience it much, at least in many ways. Yet it has been a persistent part of Christianity from the very beginning. Persecution has been with us from this moment, even from before this moment. Now, we haven't had really in many ways to to suffer for our faith in some ways. But there is no doubt that we will. There is no doubt of that. So today's text, which we've just read here in, in Acts chapter 4, today's text helps put the, the amazing work of God into its true context. So the amazing work of God that we've seen in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and will continue to see, is now put into the context of reality. It's put into the context of the real world. This is what actually happened. This is what it's like to live and be the people of God with the power of God and the presence of God, preaching the message of God. This is what it's like. The gospel is powerful and God is amazing and the spirit is present in the world. And all of that is true. And all of that is true in the context of the same sinful world that crucified Jesus. Right? What's happening in Acts is the same world. It's the same people that killed Jesus. That's the context this happens in. So what does this mean for us as Christians today? How should we understand persecution? What should we, we, we do about it? Let's consider that this morning. As we first consider this, that being a Christian is about Christ. Being a Christian is first and foremost and, and ultimately about Christ. As we see what happens here, so this, this is a follow-on of them healing the man in chapter 3 and what happens. So as we follow this, the, the Sanhedrin come, the leaders come, because the power of God is clearly evident here. There is no denying it, and it comes through the whole passage. They know they cannot deny it because the gospel is powerful. So having just set the temple into chaos of praise because of, of healing this man and the man getting up and walking and running and leaping around and praising God, and then they have spent, it's probably been a couple of hours that they're preaching and that they're talking and teaching the people here. 
that they, they finally are confronted by the rulers. We've seen the power of Jesus. We've seen what he can do and that the power of the name of Jesus is in believing in his name. And that's what Peter and John have been teaching the people. Believe in the name of Jesus who was dead and who by the power of God was raised from the dead for life eternal. That's what they've been telling the people. That's what they've been preaching. Now, as we see that, it says, you know, the, the rulers come and confront them. One of the results, it says in verse 4, is, however, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So now the cumulative number of just the men in the church, heads of the families and all, is about 5,000. So the church itself is much bigger than that. So it's, it's growing. And it grows by the very fact that Peter and John have been there and this man is testifying of what God has done in his life. And then they get arrested and it doesn't put people off. People still believe. This is the greatest miracle. You're the miracle of, of giving the man, the lame man, the ability to walk again is amazing. But the greater miracle of all of this is that in verse 4 that many believe. Many come to believe Jesus as Savior. This is the true power of Jesus' name. This is the glory of Jesus' name. And through persecution, it continues to grow. And we'll see that as we continue on through Acts chapter, uh, the next few chapters of Acts, that as the persecution grows, so the church grows. In fact, by this stage, Luke stops giving us numbers. I think this is the last time that Luke gives us a number of the size of the church because it just keeps growing and from that point it doesn't really matter. And his point isn't counting how many people, it's just that the gospel is getting people saved. The power is evidently seen. In verse 7 it says, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? There's a couple of other allusions through here, but what they're saying is we see you've done a miracle. We, we can tell that. There is no denying what's happened here. You've come and you've used the name of Jesus to raise this man to walk, and he is. We can't deny that. The man is standing right there. Now, Luke gives us a detail here that he didn't give us in chapter 3, and that is that this man was no young man in terms of, like, he wasn't a, a teenager or a, in his 20s. He's 40 years old, so for 40 years he has never walked. And so that's, in, in the eyes of the people, here's a man who is 40, he's lived a good section of his life, and he's never walked, and now he is. The miracle could not be hidden. The church was growing. People's lives were, were being changed. And this is where the Sanhedrin, so this, this group which comes up, which is largely Sadducees. The Sadducees were part of the ruling elite, as we, we know. Their perhaps main issue was that they didn't believe in the supernatural. So they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. Uh, they were really ultimately a political party in many ways, but they were the, the religious elite of the time. And so part of their problem is, so it says in verse 16, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we, we cannot deny it. They can't deny what has been done. Their problem is... They are preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and because Jesus rose from the dead, people can have life and salvation. 
They don't believe any of that. Which means if, if this message is being preached that Jesus rose from the dead, that there is a resurrection, that there is life after death, that salvation can come, and, and they can see the evidence of that, all the power that they have built up in their religion and in their self is being attacked. People are going to stop believing us, stop listening to us, because here are people who are saying that there is a resurrection and actually showing people there's a resurrection in the power of God. Power of Jesus' name, the power of the gospel changes lives. It's evident. It can be seen. Let the gospel be seen. Let it be seen and heard in you. What kind of testimony does our life have of Christ? See, what's causing these, these religious leaders' problems is here is a man who has been changed by Jesus Christ and he's telling everybody and there's no denying it. When Christ saves us from our sins, he changes us. And we begin to change more and more, but too often we hide those changes. It was, you're watching the ad for, I think it's MasterChef. And there's, there's a guy on, on MasterChef, apparently, who's coming on, and he's a boilermaker, I think. And he's embarrassed about what people, his friends and his work colleagues will think because he's been crying on MasterChef. Right? So we've hidden certain things there. And it's kind of how we are with Christ. Christ changes us, and inside there is something different about us, but we hide it from those around us. We don't want people to see what's happened within we can't just tell people the gospel is powerful. We need to let people see in our lives that the gospel is powerful. Now, as the, the apostles stand and they stand before them, they're in their thing and they get charged, tell us what's going on. Tell us what power you did this. We come to verse 12. Verse 12 says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Pardon me, be saved. In this verse, we find that the path to salvation is exclusive. The path to salvation is exclusive. The power of the gospel, so the, the power of the resurrection, the power that changes lives, the power that makes a difference in this world is Jesus. And only Jesus. This has been the call of Christianity from the very beginning, that only Jesus can save. They had probably been teaching in the temple for a couple of hours because it was th uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when they got there and, and healed the man. Now, we see it's too late for them to convene the, the temple, because uh, the, the Sanhedrin as a council, because they couldn't do it at night. Didn't stop them with Jesus, but it stops them here. So they hold them in prison until the next day so they can bring the council together because they want to know what's going on. They really want to do something with these two, Peter and John. So the next morning, they bring them before the council. They all gather and all of the influential people were there. At least some of us. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time. Annas is his father-in-law who still acts in many ways as a high priest. So all the powerful people are there. They're there to question Peter and John about what has happened. So Peter gets the opportunity to defend them and to show them why. Where did this power come from? And so, like Peter, he grabs the opportunity to preach Christ. 
He lets no opportunity go by to preach Christ again, and he takes it. The work of God has, as we've seen, opened up the word of God to many in the temple. They've understood and they believed. And now, not only has the word of God been able to get out to many in the temple, now Peter has the opportunity to stand before the elite of Israel and preach Christ crucified and risen again. God has opened up new doors. Now, we may not see anything happen here amongst the religious elite, but we do, later in Acts, and we'll see, begin to see the gospel starts to infiltrate and change the lives of priests and Levites and the leaders of the, of the, the people of Israel. So again, Peter draws attention to how this happened. It happens in the name of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about good deeds. It wasn't about having special power for Peter and John. It was all about the name of Jesus. The miracle happened because of Jesus. The same Jesus, he tells them, that they rejected. The same Jesus that they crucified. The same Jesus that rose from the dead. This one which they refused to believe. Our role in this world is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the name of Jesus. We're not trying to reform society. We're not trying to change cultures. We're not even trying to build churches. Those things can happen. and They can be part, they are part of what the gospel can do, but they are not our focus. Our goal, preach Jesus Christ, that through the name of Jesus, people can be saved. Peter and John weren't there trying to take over the power of the Sanhedrin and become some new ruling sect. That wasn't their, their point. It wasn't their plan. They weren't trying to become influential in society. They wanted the name of Jesus to be known. This is the life. This is the message of the Christian, Jesus Jesus, we're told here in verse 4, as throughout all the Bible, is the only way of salvation. He is our consuming passion. And he is our consuming passion because he is the only way to salvation. This verse, verse 12, puts us at odds with everything our society teaches. It's interesting, I was watching... Um, uh, just snippets a, a bit early last night of Prince Philip's funeral. And one of the commentators was making, uh, making note of the faith of the Queen and Prince Philip. Uh, the, the Queen, who is staunchly Church of, of England. Um, but they were speaking very highly of Prince Philip's religion, which was because he travelled the world, he took in all of the religions. He was excellent because he was highly open-minded to everyone and everything and, and respecting and drawing from all of the religions. And this, to them, was seen as the great thing of his religion and his faith. You know, much of the world has other gods. No, that's no, no secret. It's, it's no, no, nothing unusual. You know, apart from Christianity, Judaism and Islam... Every other religion is very open and very accepting, not only to their own gods, but any god. 
Hindus can be quite accepting of, of Buddhism and Islam and Christianity. It's, it can be open. It doesn't matter. All gods can be thought of. You know, the polls show in our Western society, as they, they uh, survey people and, and try and find out on people in their, their religious state, polls show our society is increasingly syncretic or syncretistic, really, which is this. That is, we're not really one thing. We draw from everything. So I'll take what I believe, what I like from this religion or that religion or this belief or that belief and this, and I'll put it all in together and I will make my own religion and I will make my own God. That is the predominant belief of Western society. I'll just make my own from everything that I like from wherever. That's how we live. That's how our society believes. In fact, to believe in one true God in our society now is considered to be arrogant, intolerant, and completely unacceptable. We're not allowed to believe that Jesus is the only way and be considered reasonable people. But there is no other way of salvation. There is no other way. No other religion will get you there. No other belief system, no other, other faith system is going to get you eternal life, is going to free you from your sins. We don't have time this morning to compare other religions. We've done that you know, last year or the year before we did that as we went through looking at some of those religions. We don't have time to do that this morning. But this is, this is what the Bible tells us, that Christianity is a message of exclusiveness. That is, no one... Nothing else can save you from your sin. No one and nothing else can get you to heaven. There is no other way, no other person that can give you a relationship with God. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Why are we as Christians so adamantly exclusive why do we believe Jesus only over every other thought and over every other thing, even when there are you know, good things in other religions? They can do good, good deeds and be good people. Why are we so adamantly exclusive? Because no other God has ever done what Jesus did. No other God has actually done anything for what is wrong with humanity. No other God has ever died for someone else's sins and risen again. There is no one, no one like Jesus. It's an old uh, song which came into my mind as I studied, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. It starts, oh, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. There is no one like Jesus. This truth 
the truth of verse 12, puts us at odds with our world. It sets us up for persecution because it is the opposite of what the world believes. So, because Christianity is about Christ, sometimes being a Christian is hard. Sometimes being a Christian is hard. But Jesus promised help. So here, Peter and John stand before the gathering of the Sanhedrin with an opportunity to present themselves. It tells us in verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Jesus promised help, and here we see that happening. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks often of, of trials and persecution because of Jesus. Jesus told us that. But almost every time that God, that the Bible speaks of persecution or trials because of our faith, it also gives us encouragement in it. John 16, you may have peace in the world, I have overcome the world. In 1 John chapter 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Almost every time the Bible speaks about being persecuted for our faith, it gives us encouragement through the promise of God. And that is what we see in this passage here. This instance is no different. The apostles are imprisoned, they are threatened, but they reveal the promise is kept by God. At this moment, Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit, which means be, to be filled by the Holy Spirit, as is used here and throughout the New Testament, means to be strengthened by God for the moment, to be endued or to be filled with power for the purpose of God. So here, Peter has an opportunity. He is brought before the Sanhedrin. He needs to speak the truth, and God fills him. God empowers him to boldly proclaim the truth in a time when he needs to. God is fulfilling his promise. We remember back to Luke, and there's a couple of places in Luke where we are reminded that Jesus told the disciples this. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, Now, when they bring you to the synagogues, and magistrates and authorities do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say so Jesus promised he said they're going to drag you in front of their councils don't worry about it I will give you the words I will empower you in that moment and here we see that taking place in Luke chapter 21 so again later in the life of Christ there it says, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And what does it say happen when they speak? It says they are amazed at these men, at what they have to say. When the time comes for God's people to stand up for God, God will strengthen give spiritual wisdom verse 13 says now when they saw the boldness of peter and john and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men they marveled and they realized that they had been with jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them they could say nothing against it 
Verse 15 says, but when they had, co had commanded them to go aside at the council, they conferred among themselves. You know, the, the verse we read before in Luke 21, verse 15, it says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. It's being shown here. You know, how are Peter and John, fishermen, supposed to be reasonably thought that they could stand before the most educated people in all of Israel and properly defend themselves? You know, it, it'd be like someone like, like me trying to defend myself against the best lawyers in Australia. I have no idea about, about law or anything like that. It would be, that, that's what it's like. Just some guy standing in front of the most elite, the most educated in society and amazing them with the words that they speak. The Spirit of God enabled them to confound the wise. They didn't know what to do. God's way isn't our way. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. They look at these two men, Peter and John, and they see uneducated and unlearned. And essentially what that means is they didn't go to the right schools. They didn't have the education that they needed. They didn't have the approved teaching. So they looked at these guys and they looked down on them like, these guys are just nobodies. They, they haven't been to our Ivy League schools. They haven't got our pedigree. They haven't got our education. These are peasants who don't deserve our respect. These men didn't conform to their ideology and therefore were considered beneath them. And nothing has changed. Often how Christianity is characterized is just like that. You know that Christians are weak-minded and believe in some fairy tale. That we refuse to believe settled science. That we cling to archaic beliefs like the life of the unborn, strong family units, or traditional marriage. These are weak, archaic ideas that nobody holds anymore. If you believe these sorts of things, or that God created the world, you are just a, a silly, fairy tale believing nobody. Taken seriously in most realms. In fact, I can give you several cases in just the last year where Christians, highly educated, influential Christians in the world of science, have been removed from their places of job, not because they are not good at their job, but because they simply believe God. Yet these weak men confounded the wise. It is evident they had been with Jesus. Could there be this... this that, that phrase has always struck me. Could there be any better description of someone than that? It was seen that they had been with Jesus. If I get to the end of my life or any part in my life and somebody can look at me and say, it's evident he's been with Jesus, that will be all I need. That's the peak of everything, that it can be seen in me, that people will look and say, Clearly, he's been with Jesus. It was evident that they'd been with Jesus. In fact, Jesus had put these same people in the same place 
spoken to him and they didn't know how to interact or how to, how to live or answer that. When Jesus says, don't worry what to say, that doesn't mean be unprepared. The Spirit will apply. See, they had been with Jesus. They had been learning from Jesus. They had been studying the scriptures. They knew. So when, when Jesus said, don't worry what to say when you stand before them, he doesn't mean don't be unprepared. He means when the time comes, you don't need to worry about it because what you have learned, what God has done in your life, I will empower you to remember. I will empower you to speak. I will give you the boldness you need in the moment. Don't worry about the moment. Spend your life learning from Jesus. When the time comes, the Spirit will enable you to use, you that, to use that with power. Psalm 119 verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You, know, you don't have to go to all the right schools. You don't have to go to, to Bible schools and you don't have to go to seminaries to speak the word of God with power and with passion and with truth. Just be with Jesus. Spend time in his word. Then don't be intimidated. This persecution is about Jesus. It says in verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is... Uh, right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to listen to God, you judge. The persecution is about Jesus. That's their issue. Their issue is Jesus. They don't like that he has a name which has power. They don't like that he is the one who resurrected. Peter reminds us who we should fear. We should fear God who, Jesus himself tells us, has the power to put men into hell. He says, don't worry about people who can destroy your body. He says, how about you worry about the one who not only can destroy your body, but has the power after life? How about we be in fear of him, not the fear of the ones who can give us pain physically? Now, I want us to understand something also this morning about persecution. Because I think for most of us, when we think of persecution, we think of imprisonment. We think of, of physical trials. We think of torture and torment and those sorts of things. But persecution has many forms and comes in many ways. You know, there's a lot of debate right now at the moment around our world through Christian circles about what is and what isn't persecution. By the way, governments and things around the world are treating uh, religions and churches and Christianity through this pandemic. Many think that if we're not imprisoned or if we're not tortured, we have no right to think that we're being persecuted. But as I said, persecution isn't just about physical violence or imprisonment. See, Peter and John experienced that. They experienced the imprisonment. They experienced violence, and you will see more of that through Acts. The early church had many people killed. But persecution comes in many forms and many intensities. What we find here is not so much the imprisonment that is the persecution for Peter and John, but the threatening. What were they told to do? Do not speak in the name of Jesus again. 
They threatened them, do not speak in the name of Jesus again, being pressured to suppress the name of Jesus is persecution. Anytime we are pushed, pressured in some way to not speak of Jesus, that's persecution. Whether subtly or forcefully, the pressure to be silent in the name of Jesus is persecution. It comes by perhaps disrespecting and disregarding the people because of Christ. Pressuring to accept ideas, pressuring to accept principles or beliefs that are contrary to Christ. So you can preach Christ as long as you believe these things or say that Christ does this or likes this or is this way. Why does the world want the name of Jesus silenced? You know, and we could probably give you a, a bunch of, uh, of illustrations right now in our very own society where there is pressure to keep the name of Jesus out of conversation. Why? Why the pressure by the world to keep the name of Jesus silent? Because Satan knows the power of the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Satan knows it. The demons know it. We see that through Acts 2. We see it through the Gospels. He knows that in the name of Jesus, people can be saved from their sins. He knows that in the name of Jesus, salvation comes. In the name of Jesus, lives are changed. Satan knows that at one point, everyone, everyone will bow to the name of Jesus. So finally and quickly, being a Christian requires prayer. This is how they end. Peter and John are uh, let go from the Sanhedrin, threatened. Do not ever speak in the name of Jesus again. They go back to the church and they tell the church everything. They tell the church what had happened. They tell the church about the miracle. They knew, and they tell them about what the Sanhedrin said to them and how they were threatened and that they weren't to speak of Jesus ever. And the church is now at a turning point. See, the church needs God. They had a decision to make. Will they believe that Jesus will build his church? Will they believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against him and his church? Or will they give in? What will they do? How will they react? You know, we, we think, and, and maybe the temptation was there, and it's certainly here in our society. What if we just change the way we talk about Jesus a little bit, so that it doesn't offend them so much, and we can still talk about Jesus, but we leave out all the bad bits. Maybe they thought about it. Maybe if we just talk about Jesus, but we don't, we don't spend so much time talking about the resurrection. Because that seems to be what gets under their goat. Maybe if we talk about Jesus, but we, we talk more about how the Romans crucified Jesus, and not so much about how the Israelites cried out to crucify him. We can still get that Jesus died in there, but not have to worry about Israelites. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can reshape the gospel and kind of keep it there, but make people a little bit more happy. In the end, nothing really comes of it. It's a completely powerless gospel. 
But the church has a choice to make here. What are we going to do? And so they do what they should do. They pray. They pray. They go to God. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. They couldn't change the message of the gospel. They couldn't alter it. They couldn't dumb it down. They couldn't water it down because that's not the gospel. They had a choice to make. Are we going to stand up to the threats to suppress the name of Jesus or do we keep doing it? Their first response is dependence on God. They realize this is bigger than they are. We see the same lessons we've been learning all along here in their prayer. We see one, they prayed together. They are united in one voice together. They prayed believing God. Listen to the the beginning of their prayer. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by your mouth or your servant David has said. He is powerful and he is sovereign. They prayed from scripture. So they take Psalm 2. And they apply it to God and they pray it back to God and they say, God, this is what you've said. Now, help us deal with it. They pray together. They pray believing God. They prayed from Scripture. They prayed specifically. They prayed specifically. It says in verse 27, For truly your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed before both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before them. Now, Lord, look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. What did they do? They said, dear God, they've told us not to speak your word. So give us boldness to do that. They didn't dilly-dally around and play around. They said, God, this is what we need. We need to keep speaking your word, so let's do it boldly. Give us the power to do it boldly. This is the prayer all through the New Testament. I've got a whole list of verses here which all say the same thing. Dear God, help us to be a witness boldly. Help us to speak the name of Christ boldly over and over again. That the work and the word of God would be evident in them. And they finish by praying for the honor of Jesus Christ. And what happens? God strengthens his church. They pray for the will of God to be done. They pray for God's power and God answers their prayer because it is for his glory. It is for his honor. And God enables his people. They pray that God would give them boldness to speak for God in a world which does not like God. And God said, yes. Brothers and sisters, that's our prayer. We live in a world that does not want the name of Christ renown. So let's pray that we speak with boldness the name of Jesus in a world that doesn't want to hear the name of Jesus. If you say Christians are persecuted here in Australia, people, even some Christians, will mock you, say you're joking. We're not being persecuted in Australia. Part we're not. Nobody's going to prison yet for Jesus. Nobody's being tortured here for Jesus. 
But the truth is, our society is increasingly trying to suppress the name of Jesus being spoken. I know you've seen those areas. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. But the name of Jesus is powerful. Satan and the demons know it. No matter how it comes, subtly or overtly, we must never, ever let the name of Christ be silenced. Be bold. Be bold for Christ. Doesn't mean trying to make it more appeasing. It means God's people gather as God's churches. And we pray for boldness. We pray for boldness in proclaiming God proclaiming the living and glorified Jesus Christ. Pray boldly that the power of Christ will be seen in us, will work through, the, through us. Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to be bold? Because salvation is in Jesus alone. There is no other way. This world, our neighbors, our family members, our friends need to know that Jesus saves. Their little conglomerate of beliefs is not going to get them to eternity with Jesus Christ, is not going to save them from their sins and save them from condemnation. No other name but Jesus. We need to be willing to risk our reputations we need to be willing to risk our lives for that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. Sometimes your word is exciting and it fills us with, with encouragement and joy and just wants to make us move out in, in just overwhelmed excitement. And sometimes, dear God, it's confronting and challenging and even hurtful. And in some ways that is today. Because we know, whether we experience it now, we know that, that the name of Jesus is not well thought of in this world. And we need the boldness to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus because only you can save. Fill us with an absolute confidence that like Paul, we can say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep those committed to him. And that in that absolute confidence, we will seek you for boldness to proclaim that truth. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's just sing one song of response this morning. Um, we're going to sing In Christ Alone as our song of response this morning. And we'll, 